Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Triune God, how gracious and merciful you are towards us. Your faithfulness is ever new. In our best days, we are not deserving of your love, yet you have chosen to accept us and also to raise us up by the same power in which you raised Jesus from the dead. We come before you this morning broken and hurting, yet your grace has healed us. We have come before you empty-handed, yet your mercy has made us rich. We have become before you as rebellious children, yet your love has made us friends. Grant us your peace this morning. Set our affections on you. Remind us of your great and wonderful promises that are found in Scripture. Let us see you anew. Let us see your beauty. Let us taste and see that you are good. And Father, we pray that you continue to touch us. And Lord, let us love one another and serve one another through the suffering that we face. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, who has made all things possible. We pray this in his name. And God's people said, Amen. Do you have any doubt that he loves you this morning? If so, I pray that he would show you this morning his great love for us as we open up his word. For his love is found in his word and what he's done for us. Mark chapter 12 as we continue with the gospel of Mark. We've been working our way now a couple years through it. We're getting close to the end. The title of today's message is God of the Living. Let me ask you, if you were alone on a desert island with a pig, would you eat the pig or would you starve to death? Silly questions. If you got to choose between 50 years of being incredibly happy or to live forever and be unhappy, what would you choose? Silly questions and ludicrous hypothetical situations have always been used over the years to trap someone into affirming something that they truly don't believe, or to convince others that their beliefs are absurd or silly. People, you might have come across people who try to question about God and are skeptical about God's power. And they'll ask questions like, can God make a rock too big that he can't carry it? Or can God make a square circle? All of these types of ways in which they're making absurdities to try to either put you into a bind in which you don't know how to answer, or things in which it just doesn't make any sense. In asking these types of questions, people are really trying to deflect what is taught and believed about God. Today we're going to see another group of religious leaders who are trying to make Jesus look ridiculous and take his beliefs and make them seem absurd. Up to this point, the religious and political leaders resent Jesus. He is now in Jerusalem. We are at the last week of his life, and now he's in the center of religious life. He's in the center of power, and we've seen that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, and others, they resent Jesus, not only because he has captured the heart of the people, but also because of their failure to use his popularity for their own agenda. And that's what people do. If they, if they can't control you, they want to control your agenda. They want it to use for themselves. Well, since the religious leaders could not find any traction in attacking Jesus' authority, his message or his ministry, they now begin a different ploy. 
In chapter 12, Mark is recording Jesus' confrontation with religious and political leaders that take the form of questions. Last week was about whether or not they were to pay the Roman poll tax, the census tax. They want to know, is it spiritually legal? According to the Mosaic law, can a true Jew pay tax to Rome? Jesus responded in the affirmative. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and render unto God the things that are God. But by rendering to Caesar what Jesus was teaching is that they ultimately render to God who put all things under Christ. Pastor John Piper notes that though God's supreme authority limits the authority of Caesar and his allegiance, we owe him. When Jesus said it, it's ended by saying the people marveled at him. Jesus was a hard man to pigeonhole or to ridicule, but they're going to try once again. As Mark records, a new group of religious leaders who approach Jesus with an unlikely scenario, trying to make him look foolish and uneducated about the scriptures. So here we are in Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, we're in verse 18. It'll be on the screen as well. Follow along silently with me as I read. As Mark records to the Holy Spirit, And the Sadducees came to him, speaking of Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, and he leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This was something that was normal in that time. There were seven brothers, the scenario goes. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no children, no offspring. And so the second took her, and he died, also leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. In verse 22, he goes on, and then the seven left no offspring. She had went through each and every brother, but no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In verse 23, In the resurrection, when they rise again, here's their question, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Father, these questions, sometimes we just don't know where they come from. They just come from unbelief. They come from doubt. They come from skepticism. Father, we're not immune to it. Maybe many of us have come to Christ and to Scripture, to God, with these very same types of questions. May we even approach with these types of questions. And Father, many times they might have silenced us. But Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of Mark. I thank you for Mark's faithfulness in recording from Peter's sermons and the eyewitness accounts all that Christ did that's here through the Spirit. And Father, it's here for our benefit. It's here to make it relevant to us. So let us do the difficult work of reading your word, praying through your word, and that you may show us how we may apply it today. Be with us. Give us wisdom, we pray in your name. Amen. Now we're introduced for the first time in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, of a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. They were very wealthy, powerful, and very influential in Jerusalem. Not in all of Judea, not in all of Israel, but in Jerusalem. They served as the priests, and they were in charge of the temple, hence why they were very, very powerful. Politically, they were pro-Roman. They loved the Roman government because it was through the Roman government who kept them in power. Theologically, they were very fundamental. They were sola scripture, but their sola scripture was the Old Testament, mainly just the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't follow the rest of the writings and the prophets. They would read them, but they did not feel that they were scripture in their eyes. They were not the real 
Bible as in that time. And they were not very lenient in religious matters. The Pharisees were always looking for loopholes. They were legalistic, but they were looking for loopholes, so that, but they always wanted to control them. But the Sadducees, they were much more strict. They were rivals with the Pharisees who were more popular with the people. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they had become involved in this issue with Jesus because Jesus had disrupted their business by cleaning out the temple. They did not like what Jesus did a few chapters back when he went in Palm Sunday and cleaned out the temple. Now Jesus is messing with their business. Till then, they really didn't care. He didn't spend much of his time in Jerusalem. But now he was in their territory. And since the political question of taxes didn't work, they come alongside and they want to try a theological and absurd hypothetical question for Jesus. They did not believe in the resurrection, nor did they believe in spiritual beings, including angels. So they come up with this outlandish scenario to try and demonstrate how absurd a belief in the resurrection of the dead is. Now, what's interesting to me is that almost every culture from time past to the present have some form of belief in the afterlife or some type of resurrection or some type of spiritual life, some type of life after death. But to them, it was absurd. And so they're going to come up with this question about a wife having to marry someone and then in the end, whose wife is she? Now what they're referring to is what a Levite law. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but it also had some principle and can be found in Genesis 38 with Judah. The purpose of this law was to maintain the family heritage along with tribal lands and property in ancient Israel as it would pass from the first son to the next. And so if the first son died without leaving an heir, then his family line is broken. So one would marry, if he didn't have children, then that widow, if she had not yet buried any children, would marry the second son. And then when he, they had that child, that child would then take the place of his father. That's not something that was always very, very popular as we see in Genesis 38. God killed a man because he would not do what he was required to do. He actually killed two men because they failed to follow that law, that principle. But this was done to, in ancient Israel and ancient countries to maintain family heritage along with tribal lands, but it was also protect the woman, the widow. For in those days, a widow, she could be lost. She could be cast out of the family. But in this, those days, this is how they protected the widow. Now, what they're trying to do here through this question, they're trying to prove that the belief in the resurrection was absurd. Now, the scenario they gave was ridiculous, but also somewhat plausible. The reality of second marriages was just as a common occurrence as it is today. People got divorced and got remarried, or people died and their surviving spouse remarries. Now, it normally wouldn't happen that you would go through all seven brothers without any cheering, but, but it was something that they were thinking about. Well, wait a second, what if she had one or two, or maybe even three? Whose wife is she? Now, they were probably asking this question based on Jesus' previous statements. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John. John chapter 5. I want to show you. They're probably asking Jesus because some things are finally coming on to them and they're wanting to know about the, who, what he believes. And in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus makes a statement about life after death. In John chapter 5, verse 25, And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel, He says at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus is teaching is there is a rendering day. There is a day when judgment will be rendered. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, is appointed a man once to die, then after this, the judgment. See, many people go through life thinking that this life that they're living is just their own and that they'll never have to give an account for how they live their life. But let me tell you, there will be a day where we will stand before an almighty God and he will even say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. They didn't like this. Most of us don't like this type of talk. We like about life after death. But yet in their mind, this was absurd. In their mind, Jesus' was teaching was not found in the writing of Moses. And this would lead to ridiculous outcomes if true. So what's important here is understanding what they're saying is trying to prove their point. Jesus, there is no resurrection of the dead. So they come up, not with scripture, but they come up with some absurd hypothetical and say, well, what about this? Well, Jesus' answer, like it always is, is wonderful and gives us insight into the things of God. So if we're in Mark chapter 12, follow along back in chapter 12, looking at verse 24. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. In essence, he's saying you guys are ignorant. Verse 25, he goes to answer the question. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Verse 27, he makes it very simple. He makes it clear. Here it goes. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus accuses them of ignorance. And he points out two errors in their ignorance and in their thinking. They did not know the scriptures, nor did they know the power of God. First, they did not understand marriage. And that's what we have to see when it comes to scripture. They did not understand marriage. And I believe today, many people today do not understand marriage. You see, the purpose of marriage is not only the propagation of human life and of fellowship and to help each other fulfill the creation mandate, but is also created to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage was actually a precursor to what the church was going to be like. It was created to show something much more wonderful than just a husband and a wife coming together. But see, the thing is, in eternity, that picture is now complete. Marriage no longer will be necessary. In other words, marriage is not needed in heaven as our focus will be on serving and worshiping only God. Paul gives one reason why marriage will not be in heaven as it's found in 1 Corinthians. Would you turn your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians? Paul gives us just some simple statements that help us understand. In 1 Corinthians, found in the New Testament, Paul writes in chapter 7. Look with me in verse 32, and he's talking to the church. 
And the church itself is struggling about marriage. Some were saying that you should not be married. But Paul is saying, wait a second, marriage is a gift from God. It was given at the creation mandate. It was God who gave away the first bride. But he says, there is a gift of singleness. They both have their place. But he says this. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man, and married men, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. He is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Let me tell you, if you are single, you have just given men and women what your goal in life is to be. Anxious about the things of the Lord, not on things of this world. But for the married woman is anxious about worldly things. If you want to write this down, heaven is anxiety-free. Amen? Heaven is anxiety-free. Our focus will not be on the things of the world, but will now be totally free to worship and please the Father. This is not a portion that's saying that angels are not male or female. It doesn't really tell us that. It just tells us that there's not marriage. It's not needed. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's love for his church and the church's submission to the Father, to Christ. That picture will be complete. He says, you don't even know what marriage is. To their mind, everyone's still going to be married in heaven. That's not the case. Now, for men, sometimes you think, okay. Uh, Women sometimes think, that's not great, okay. Uh, We like to have those relationships. I don't know how all that works out in heaven, and that's not the the point here of Mark's recording, but what he's telling us here is you don't know Scripture. You don't know what marriage is. So if anything, understand that marriage is a picture that will be completed when we are in heaven and eternity. Secondly, and most importantly, is these people, they should have known this, but their ignorance is on display as they did not understand the faithfulness of God. They didn't understand the faithfulness of God. You see, the question about the resurrection, does God resurrect the dead? Is there a life after life? Is there eternity? Is actually a question about the faithfulness and promises of God. Let me say that again. The point of the resurrection, of life eternal, is about the promises and the faithfulness of God. His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This blessing was to be eternal. If you, if you want to take your Bibles real quickly, Genesis 17. He tells us in chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 4, he says, My covenant, speaking with Abraham, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I made you the father of a multitude of nations. Look at what he says in verse 6 of Genesis 17. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be to God to you and your offspring after you. That promise is to Abraham and his offspring. The blessings of Abraham is eternal. It's based on God's faithfulness, not on the faithfulness or the works or the obedience of the patriarchs. The covenant was not voided when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died. If it did, then they themselves would be outside the promises of Abraham. Now, we have spent some time several years ago 
in the book of Galatians. And I would refer that to you on our website if you'd like to go through that and listen to those. But in it, we see that God's blessing has now been given to a greater group of people that's not just ethnic and national, but to all those who trust in the works of Christ. Amen? The rejection of Jesus is marvelous. We saw several weeks ago. Why is it marvelous? Because the rejection of Jesus has opened the door for all Gentiles to receive the blessing of Abraham. And it's not just here on this earth, but it's forever. Amen? And that's a hope that you and I should have and should share. Jesus, in his answer, quotes Exodus 3.6 when he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, to answer the Sadducees. This passage from the Pentateuch, the only books that the Sadducees acknowledge as from God. He says, he is not the God of the dead. He's not Hades. He's not Enubis, but he's the God of the living. They themselves could not interpret Scripture correctly. They may have sola Scripture, but they limited and did not understand what was written within it. There's two things I need you to grasp this morning as we look at Mark and we comprehend what Jesus is saying here. The first thing that you and I need to do, and this is something that's important, is that you and I need to commit to all of Scripture in our thinking. We need to commit to all of Scripture in our thinking. They had ignored and abused the rest of the Old Testament. They did not accept it. And I believe today that we have many Christians, those who profess Christ, who are ignorant of the Scriptures. Either they haven't accepted it, they struggle with it, they don't read it, they don't listen to a good interpretation of it, or in the fact that we just don't think it's relevant to us today. You see, the hope of the resurrection was found in the Old Testament, but they denied it. In Psalms chapter 16, David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, speaking of the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, speaking of the Messiah. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 49 says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the grave, from death. In Psalms 23 that we read and sung earlier, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, the promise of the resurrection was there. Now, I will admit this. In some cases, the Sadducees had a good question. For the resurrection of the dead was not given in its entirety as we see in the New Testament. The, the instructions or the resurrection was given progressively. But yet it was there for them to comprehend. But you and I have to understand that Scripture is given for our profit. It's given for our profit. Take your Bibles real quickly. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. We need to recognize that you and I need to have a commitment to all of Scripture in our thinking, to all of our thinking, whether it's in our finances, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our decisions for retirement, how we parent, how we do our marriage, that Scripture ought to come in and influence our thinking. Hebrews chapter 1.1, he says, Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Speaking of Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos, but he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son or by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. But then go to chapter 2, 
verse 1, as he continues, he then says at verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, therefore, based on that, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I think for many people today, they have drifted away from the hope of the resurrection of the dead. In other words, we live our lives as if we will never stand before God and give an account, whether as a disobedient children or someone who is trying to be faithful and our aim is to please God. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, Continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with Scripture, with the sacred writings. He says, for Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching. It's for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here's the question. You and I need to have a commitment to all of Scripture in our thinking. Let me ask you this. What role does Scripture play in your thinking today? In what way does Scripture play in you dealing with your finances and, again, dealing with relationships? How does it help you deal with suffering? How does it help you deal with your anxieties in your life? How does it help you deal with the difficulties and the problems you may have in your marriage or with your children? How are you using it to help you think in, in how you should entertain yourself? In what ways is Scripture influencing your life? Or do you find yourself ignorant? Scripture. Many times when I'm counseling people or talking with them, you'll find that many times they just don't understand Scripture. Either that mainly, it's just they don't know the Scripture. And let me share with you, I know that the Bible many times can be difficult. I know sometimes you, you pick it up, you read, and you think, I just don't understand. Are you like that? Are you nodding your hands? It can be difficult. Hence why I encourage you, Sunday school, small groups in our service, let us teach you how to learn. But most importantly, just read. Even if it's just a little bit. Find a good translation that's readable, that's understandable. Today we have all sorts of wonderful free tools that can help us understand God's Word. Find someone. Don't, don't wait for someone to come in. Find someone and say, I don't understand what I read. Or why don't you be a Philip and say, do you understand what you read? As the eunuch is sitting there reading Isaiah, he says, who is this speaking of? Is it of the prophet or someone else? You and I need to be the Phillips. We need to sometimes be the eunuchs and say, I don't understand. What is this speaking of? Why? Because one day you will stand before an almighty God and get accounts of all that you've heard and all that you've read and all that you've just discarded about God's word. What role does scripture play in your thinking? We will be without excuse when we stand before a holy God. Ignorance will not be a defense. And then number two, the second thing I'd like for you to grasp from this message is that Jesus affirms the hope of the resurrection. Jesus affirms the hope of the resurrection. Recently, just before Jesus began cleansing the temple, just a week before Jesus went in Jerusalem, he is quoted in saying John 11, after getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to his sister, your brother Lazarus will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she had understood, maybe not completely, but she understood that there would be some type of resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? And so I ask you this morning, do you truly believe that one day you will rise from the dead? Do you believe that you will spend eternity in heaven? If so, how does that affect your life today? What is your hope? What is your desire? There's three questions that we need to ask about the resurrection. Number one is, what is it that we long for? What is the resurrection? Well, I would tell you simply that it's the redemption of our bodies. The Bible tells us that Christ has come to pay the penalty of sin, amen? No longer are we under the penalty of sin for those of us that trust in the work of Jesus Christ and that God has accepted that work on our behalf. But it also says that He has died that He may break the power of sin. That's Romans 6 and 7. And that we see is God has now given us the ability to say no to sin. We have taste and seen that God is good. Yes, we may struggle with sin. There may be days in which sin seems to take a hold of our lives and seems to have us in its shackles, but we know that through the Spirit that we can fulfill the walk of the Spirit. So, but it's finally that redemption of our body. And let me tell you, this is the one that I'm looking forward to right now. And that's the deliverance from the presence of sin. Scripture tells us that our body just groans with sin. Creation itself groans. Let me ask you, are you groaning with sin in your body? Are you just ready for the presence of sin to just be delivered from, to be wiped away? Today, you and I, yes, we may be standing in in the hope of Christ. We may have accepted Him, but yet we understand that we still fight with sin. And there will be one day when every tear will be wiped away and all things will be given new and we will no longer have sin to deal with. Are you waiting for that day? I am. But do you live as if that day is coming? Do you recognize that we need to fight against that presence of sin? Is it giving you hope? Is it giving you encouragement to continue on? I know some of you are waiting for the redemption of your body because you're tired of knee surgeries. Maybe you're tired of being sick. Maybe you're tired of that achy back. You're just getting older and you say, man, I'm just ready for a new body. I'm ready for one in which I'm six foot four and I have a full head of hair. I mean, one day that may happen. I don't know. That's my goal in eternity. But we long for the redemption of our bodies. And you ask, what will our bodies be like? It'll be like Christ. In 1 John, he tells us we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. He says when he appears, we shall be like Jesus. We shall see him as he is. Romans 8 tells us that the spirit of Jesus who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. He says he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within us. Philippians tells us that the power that enables him to subject all things to himself will give him the power to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious. What will our bodies be like in heaven? Well, there will be a visible physical body. Jesus was in a visible physical body. You could recognize him. You could see him. You could touch him. He could eat. He was recognized. He walked. He talked. He spoke to them. He walked among them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you kind of get an example of what our redeemed bodies are going to be like. The one that we're born with is perishable. The one that's raised is imperishable. It will never die. It will never grow old. One is in dishonor. The other will be in glory. One was born in weakness, but will have power. We were naturally born, tempted into sin, but now we'll be spiritual, able to please God fully and completely. It was so mortal, 
They'll eventually die. But this one was immortal. It can never die. This is the body. This is the resurrection of the dead that God has promised. Why? Because he's faithful. And you and I need to understand that the resurrection of the dead is based upon the faithfulness of God's promise. So let me ask you this. If you're here in this life, it gets you down. I know there's some of you that come in and you're putting on your best face. It's a struggle just to come in here. It's sometimes it's just a struggle to, to smile. You come in and dead life is just beating you up. Maybe you're like many of us that we're just surviving day to day, paycheck to paycheck, just trying to keep our head above the water. Things are just difficult for us. What is it that keeps us going? You see, the Sadducees, I don't know what it is that they had any hope. That was their best life now was to be in power over a temple in which someone else pulled all the strings. For them, this life was it. And let me tell you, if all in you and I have is this life here, if this is the best that life is here, then you are wasting your time sitting here listening to me. There is so much better things that you can do if this is all there is. And to be honest, if we take that Darwinian thought, and the Sadducees really had a Darwinian thought before it ever became Darwinian, is that the fact that you and I ought to just be out there trying to get the best that we can grab. Forget everyone else. Forget love and mercy. Because love, need, you know, if this is it, you better live it to the best. What's those old phrases? You know, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Well, he did that. There are many who spend their life trying to attain all that they can, but still die as a miser in their hearts. If this is all that we have, we are most to be pitied, Paul says. But he says there's much better. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, I can almost then understand why someone would take their life because they have no hope. It's hard to understand that as a Christian. But I know that Christians do suffer from those types of things. and They struggle with that. But let me tell you, there is a hope. There is a hope that can get you through even the darkest of times. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, written by a man whose life was mixed with pain, but yet also joy, who was mixed with much suffering, but yet also rejoicing, said, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in heaven, for in this tent, yes, we groan, longing to put on. You and I have a hope that is wonderful, a hope that God will raise us from the dead and give us a new body. The resurrection is God's plan. God saved you not just to save you from the penalty of death and not just to save you from the power of death, but to deliver you from the presence of sin. He says His Son, that He predestined us, He also called us, and those He called, He justified, and those He justified also He will glorify. You see, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. Get this here, I want you to write this down because this is important. This is something you want to understand. Death completes our union with Christ. Death completes our union with Christ. As we are baptized into Him, into His sufferings, and into the things He has, death completes our union with Christ, and we are now with Him. We long not for death, but we long for resurrection. 
The redemption which Christ has secured for his people is redemption not only of sin, but also from all of its consequences. Death is the wages of sin, and death of believers does not deliver them from death. The last enemy, death, has not yet been destroyed. It has not yet been swallowed up. Glorification has a view, the destruction of death itself. John Murray, a great theologian and pastor, writes that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And therefore, nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which living God will lead his redeemed. God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep his promises to them. He will be their God. Let me tell you, the resurrection of the dead is our hope. It's our reason for continuing to live as we seek to please him. And let me end with these two things. There's a folly for not believing in the resurrection. Paul says, what do I gain if, humanly speak, I fought with the beast of Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. For those who have such thought, pity be their life. For they will one day find death and find themselves at the throne room of God and found their life empty and cast away from Him. But for those who love Him, for those who trust Him, for those who look for His returning, and for that day when we are finally united with Him, when that picture is finally complete, and we know Him, and He knows us completely, and we know Him, there is hope and there is joy. So to continue on, and you ask, well, how can I continue? How does the resurrection help me continue on? Remember this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. As if we were to continue out that chapter, Paul writes this, and this is written by a man who had every right to write this, who had the credibility to write it. it says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Make it your aim to please Him, for your labor will never be in vain. Your hope will never be in vain if you trust in a God who's the God of the living, not of the dead. With every head bowed and every eye closed, like just to ask you, how much does Scripture inform your thinking? Would Christ be able to accuse you of being ignorant of both Scripture and the power of God? How much do you trust in the power of God? Do you see that He is good? Do you see that He is faithful? Do you see that He will be faithful to His promise? If not, would you ask Him this morning to give you a greater measure of faith? If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I'm not sure what would happen if I were to die, then I pray that you would turn and trust Him. Trust in the works of Christ. See Dustin, see I, we'd love to share with you how you too can know where you would spend eternity and have that union with Christ finalized. May you find your hope in that. Father, we come and we just ask for your grace and mercy. For we are a people that need you. We need that resurrection. Father, let the resurrection give us hope. Father, may the resurrection of the dead give us strength to continue on in this life when the presence of sin just continually, continually beats upon us and tears us down. Even this morning, some of us may be feeling guilt and shame because of the ways in which we were disobedient to your word or, Father, in ways in which we fell into sin or ways that we're still struggling. 
Some maybe even ready to give up hope. Father, let us come to your table this morning knowing that your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness is ever new. Lord, let our labor be productive. May our labor be found pleasing to you. And will you strengthen us with the renewed hope to know the power of God and the relevancy and the power of Scripture in finding hope in life. We pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.